So last week we spent our time, uh, if you were here, in Acts chapter 16. Uh, and this week we're actually going to be in Acts chapter 17, so you can start turning there if you'd like. Um, we looked at Christian maturity last week. We talked about as we mature in our Christian faith and our personal lives as a whole, we stop looking at ourselves so much. We start looking at the world and we start looking at the world's needs. Those around us, we start seeing those around us and what they need. We start looking at men and women on this planet the way that God looks at us. We see them with love and compassion. And that's our process of maturity as we're growing. And we start looking out and around us. We're no longer self-controlled people. The salvation that, that God has given us helps us to become controlled by self. We become self-controlled people by the power of the spirit that is living within us. Now, God enables us through his spirit, to live lives after him. And that's actually part of what the verses that we're looking at right now, the, the verse that we're quoting and we're trying to memorize specifically talks about that. Now you can uh, say it back with me. Uh, we're just going to be reading the black parts. We're going to continue with the black in just a couple more weeks and then we'll actually add all of it together. But it says this, here, let's together. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That comes from Titus 2, 11 and 12. God's word in us teaches us to be able to say no to the things that would otherwise drag us down and detract us from him and the growth that he wants to see. A true passion in these verses is God's power working through us. Unfortunately, the world that we live in denies God's power. In all reality, it wants to deny his very existence. His works are portrayed as a coincidence, and the things that he does are boiled down to mere accident in the world's standards and the way that they look at everything. The crazy part is that we as humans tend to buy into these philosophies, even though they don't sound anything logical. We feel like these things are true, even though we have a hard time believing that they could be. The world around us, the, the system that is in America today, teaches us that the world has begun from nothing, that it was an accidental explosion from nothing that created everything. And we believe it, we buy into it, even though every single explosion we have ever seen and witnessed does the exact opposite. It destroys, not creates. If it wasn't enough to take these, he, the world system takes God's intricate designs and it chalks them up to extravagant lengths of time and miniature changes of species over time. The teaching authorities of this world are bound and determined to rationalize everything. They try to make everything rational. They try to find ways to take God's accomplishments and turn them into our own, to give ourselves the glory that he alone deserves. But this past week, we celebrated our nation's 245th birthday, 245 years. This nation was founded on Christian principles, and in recent history, we have slowly moved from a strong Christian stance to what we call a more secular stance or humanistic worldview. It's where our world is going. This is what is being taught slowly in our schools more and more and in our colleges. Now, we in generations have slowly turned away from God, and unfortunately in our nation today, you will see that people idolize men and their accomplishments, their works and words, their ideas. As a nation, we're slowly turning away. And in many ways, our nation is starting to mirror what Paul saw in his day. So what we look at today is actually going to start to mirror 
uh, our nation. And you'll find this in the Greek nation. Well, and you'll find it very interesting. Today's sermon is called Speaking Greek. It's going to be about Paul and his travels as he's going from a couple of different places. And he actually ends in Athens itself. Last week, we ended our sermon with Paul and Silas having had the opportunity to share their faith to the man that was in charge of the prison. The, the man actually uh, accepted Christ as Savior, and, and many of his family did as well. Um, not long afterwards, they have to leave the country, and they continue on their missionary journeys, uh, Paul and Silas and uh, the other people that end up going with them. Paul, we soon find out, has the habit, whenever he comes into a new area, he first visits the local synagogue. So he always visits the Jewish center every time he enters a new area. Uh, and he always preaches to them. So let's actually look at the first four verses of chapter 17 together. We're going to look at chapter 17. Uh, actually, we'll do one through three. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, he went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And then verse 4, it actually says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not only a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Today we're going to be looking at three different areas about telling others the truth about Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at those who have a religious background. First, we'll be focusing on when we tell people of a religious background, how they react, what we can expect, and some ways that we can approach them, all from what Paul does. The second thing we're going to be doing is looking at those of a secular background, those who actually deny the Scripture or even God's existence at all. And we'll be talking about those people, how they react, and how Paul even approaches that. And then finally, we're going to be looking at our personal relationships. God has put us on this earth and helped us develop relationships, and he has a purpose for those relationships. So we're going to get into that at the end. So the first point today is those with a religious background. Preaching to those with a religious background, you're going to notice that as Paul has entered the synagogue, uh, he's gone and he's presented this uh, truth to them. So he goes to the Jews first, and then he goes to the Gentiles every single time. He's talked about Jesus, and he's died. That this is the Jesus that the Jews indeed are, are looking for. He knows that these people believe in God, and he's just trying to connect the dots and help them to see that they have a, a faith that can actually be turned into salvation through Jesus, because this is God's plan. He feels like that they are most of the way there, and he's like, hey, you know what? I, I, I need to connect the final dots. God has finalized his plan you can now actually enter into salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, when you notice that Paul is starting to preach, actually what he does is he points them to the scriptures. The first thing that Paul does is he uses the scriptures. As Christians, our authority is always going to be the scriptures. It is our authority. Whether people like it or not, or believe it or not, our authority is always the scriptures. We always reference back to it. And that's actually what Paul does here when he goes in and he starts talking to the Jews. Now, he actually uses this as his basis of his argument right from the beginning. He actually talks about the scriptures, and he says, hey, you know what, this is, this is where our authority comes from. And he actually talks about Jesus from the scriptures, because these religious people will get this. They understand that this is what the, the scriptures are talking about. So you're probably going to ask at this point, then, who is it that we're going to run into that has a religious background that doesn't know Jesus? Which seems like an appropriate question. Who is it that's going to have read the Bible 
but isn't going to know Jesus. That sounds kind of weird. Why would we be talking about people who have read the Bible that don't know Jesus? Well, while that's a good question, if you think of someone that believed in God, you would think that you wouldn't have to tell them about Jesus, right? Like, if you, if you believe in God, you shouldn't have to know about Jesus, would you? Well, I'm going to tell you that there is a difference between knowing God exists and trusting him for salvation. There is a huge difference between knowing that God exists and trusting him for salvation. For this, we're actually going to look to the book of James. I'll have it up on the screen so you don't have to turn to it. But this is what James says. He says that you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So from James, this verse is very telling. The demons believe that God exists. They they believe in his power. They fear and they tremble at his power. They know for a fact that God has authority. But are they going to be in heaven? We know that they're not because they're demons. So we know that they're not, but they believe in God. So this actually gives us a basis for the argument that you can believe in God and not go to heaven. There's a difference between believing in God and going to heaven because we have to have a faith, a saving faith, and that is in Christ alone. That's what the Bible teaches us again and again. You see, the reason why the demons don't actually go to heaven is because they rely on their power. They rely on themselves instead of trusting in Christ. So they never actually give themselves completely over to the leading of God in their lives. If you know someone of a religious faith, maybe a Jewish faith or a Jehovah's Witness, maybe a Mormon or even a Catholic, most Catholics, you'll find after some digging that their faith is actually, their religion is actually based in what they can do. Or maybe it's in praying to some saint. But it's not actually in what the scripture tells us to have saving faith in. You see, around Christmas time, we were memorizing the Romans road, and we wrapped up the last couple of verses, and those are Romans 10, 9, and 10. And this is what Scripture tells us. This is why we believe this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart, you believe unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. So this is, this is the simple truth of the gospel right here, just in two verses. This is what we preach to a lost and dying world. This is where our salvation comes from. It's not enough to believe that God exists and know that he is powerful. Even the demons believe that. James lets us know that. We have to actually confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that is something they are unwilling to do. It's so important that we start and center around the gospel. This is our message. This is what defines us. Now, there is only one truth. There is only one way to heaven. The Bible clearly shows that. We also have to start with the scripture. And when they say that they believe in Jesus but don't attend church or associate with Christians, we have to question what they believe and why. People who say that they are Christian but don't associate with people who go to church, they don't attend church themselves, we wonder what is it in your belief system that keeps you from here? Men and women who say they believe in Jesus but look down at other Christians for one reason or another are much like uh, much like uh, you could say a, uh, the, the armchair football coach. When you're, uh, you've, you've been to someone's house and, and they're watching a game and they are, they're on the screen and they're yelling at the coach saying that they've made a wrong decision or the refs have made a wrong decision. A person who says they believe in Jesus but doesn't go to church is much like that armchair football coach. They're not actually in the game. They're not actually there. Whereas the coach, you people are actually here. You're doing something with your faith. You're actually in the game. You're actually doing something with your faith, and you're actually walking forward. There's a huge difference in that. Now, 
This is the same Jesus uh, that James is talking about. The demons says that our faith is demonstrated by what we do. Our actions are a demonstration of our faith. This is why we tell others about Jesus, because Jesus told us to do it. Now, after Paul has preached in Thessalonica, he finds that many aren't willing to believe the truth. Unfortunately, there's a lot of religious people there that are just like, you know what, we're not going to believe. A lot of the Greeks actually believe, and when he says not a few of the leaders, he actually means many of the leaders. He uses a double negative, so he says many of the leaders uh, believe. Let's check out what happens. He gets forced out of Thessalonica, and he starts going to another place. Verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all of the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have helped turn the world upside down have come here too. Interesting thought. Jason has harbored them, and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying this is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what has happened here is that the religious people, the Jewish men and women, who have been told the truth, but have decided not to listen to it, not to hear it, uh, they get in an uproar. They, They don't believe it. Paul is successfully telling the Gentiles, and the scripture actually basically says they become envious, that Paul is actually reaching a people that they've never been able to reach, and they become envious of Paul and what he's doing, Um, which is interesting the way God's word actually puts that, and actually something that we couldn't know without the Holy Spirit's leading in direction. But unfortunately, those who know most of the truth, but not all of it, are sometimes the hardest to reach. You ever ever minister to somebody who's got a Bible, who's read a couple of passages, and they know it all, but you can't teach them anything new. Unfortunately, while they have knowledge, they lack the wisdom to apply that knowledge. Now, the underlying cause we're going to find in most cases is going to be pride. Now, it's the same reason that we as men get pigeonholed for not taking directions. Because of our pride, we think we know where we're going and where we're at. And so we, we are not willing to ask for help, even though we're completely lost and turned around. I know where I'm at. I'm, I'm right here. Uh, we, we don't want to ask for direction. Uh, does anybody remember the old book, The Emperor's New Clothes? That entire story is a, a play on, you know, it's an object lesson that our pride can blind us from the truth. And the emperor was blinded from the truth and everybody else was laughing at him. After learning that the Jews were plotting against him and dragging other people through the injustice system at this point, uh, not a justice system, for just being associated with him, uh, Paul and his traveling companions are actually ushered out of the area by night, and they end up going to another town. And once again, as Paul actually enters uh, the new town, which we're going to find out is called Berea, uh, he starts going to the synagogue once again. So actually check out verses 10 through 12 with me. 10 through 12. Then the Bereans immediately sent Paul and Silas, uh, the brethren, sorry, I said Bereans. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks and prominent women as well as the men. Okay. So here we're seeing a completely different reaction. The Bible says that these guys were fair-minded. They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. 
And the, what is their automatic reaction? They search the scripture. It's their automatic reaction. Uh, last week, we talked about automatic reaction. At the end, we're talking about maturity. And we talked about how our automatic reactions actually show off our true character because we can't hide it. And their true character was automatically, let's go back to the scripture. scripture's authority. Let's double check this and see if this man is correct or not. They trusted God's words over their own judgment. Instead of just assuming that they automatically knew everything, they went to God's words, they searched it, and they correlated everything that they were hearing back with God's word. They were wise in the way that they acted. So you're going to find that they were rewarded because of this, and we're going to see that there are really two main reactions of those who are uh, religious background when you try to teach them the truth. You're going to find that there is either an arrogance and that you can't teach me anything else, I already know everything, or you're going to find a humility where they are willing to talk to you and they're willing to actually go and work through the scriptures. These are two completely opposing attitudes uh, from the religious, but you're always going to end up running into some sort of one or the other. Now, arrogance always comes from a weak stance. Unfortunately, while it tries to look strong and confident, its unyielding and unbending nature actually puts it at a very weak spot and that everything has to come to a certain point for it to move. A person who is arrogant always stands at a very weak spot. Humility, on the other hand, comes from a place of strength. We actually see this modeled in Jesus Christ. We know that the Bible is inerrant. I humbly say, you know what? Hey, the Bible is my source, my authority. So I'm going to turn back to it. I trust it. Now, when we trust its words and we know that it won't fail, God can defend himself. He doesn't need us to defend him. God is capable of defending us as well. And unfortunately, because of the arrogant, Paul and his friends end up running from Thessalonica. But then after having success in Berea, they pursue them yet again. The people actually follow them because they find out that they're having success in another town. They push them to leave ahead and go towards Athens. So the next people we're going to be talking about is point number two. Those with a secular background. So First, Paul has talked about to the religious. He's talked, he goes specifically to the Jews, the people that know the scriptures but haven't connected all the dots. Now he's going to move into an area where people have never heard of the scriptures or maybe they've heard whispers, but they have absolutely no idea. So secular means uh, basically without the back of the religious system. So we're going away from that. It's kind of what I'm determining, uh, defining here today. Paul starts spreading the message of salvation to those who call themselves secular. And while in Athens, he's waiting for his friends to get there. So basically, because of what happened, it went down. The, uh, the Thessalonians got jealous of what happened. You can actually read it in the next couple of verses that we didn't read. Uh, and they push him out. And he kind of leaves at the dead of night. And they all kind of catch different ships. Paul gets there first, and he's waiting on everybody else to get there. Well, he's sitting around and he's waiting and he sees all these different monuments to different gods. He's looking at their idols and he's like, this is interesting. And he takes note of the culture. He's in a foreign land, but he's a student and he's learning what's around him. And he starts observing the things that are actually happening. And he sees these different things that are idols. And in his culture, uh, you're going to find that in this culture, in this day and age, they're given to, uh, I guess you could call it political correctness. They each believe in a different god. And even though they have contradicting ideas most of the time, they don't want to offend each other. So they, they play nice and they reason with each other and they, they theorize and they philosophize. But there's some different things that Paul picks up on. Let's read verses 22 through 23. 17, 22 through 23. 
Here we go. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, uh, which is the place where men went to go to debate. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He sees the idols. He's walked around. He's seen this stuff. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So like I said, Paul has arrived in a culture where he's not very familiar. He doesn't understand everything that they believe. He doesn't have to know everything that they believe, but he finds a common ground to start the conversation off with. It was through a use of their own idol that he uses to point them towards the truth. So you don't have to know everything about somebody's background and their belief system. Uh, You're not following their thought process. But having a general understanding really goes a long way. This is where he finds that common ground, where they're at. And he actually opens the conversation. Now, just a couple verses previous, in verse 18, it actually says that there are two different kinds of philosophers. uh, The Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers believe that everything evolved from nature itself. Might start sounding a little bit familiar. That there is no spiritual world, only the physical world. That everything happened through natural processes. And so it actually led them towards a, uh, a way of thinking that it, now is the only time that matters. And unfortunately, it also led them to be very sensual in their worship and their practices. Uh, some stuff that you're probably seeing in our culture today. Now, the Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, stressed the simple life, and they were very pantheistic. So everything was a god. So this chair is a god, this flag is a god, and so on and so forth. They believed that everything was alive, everything was in charge. So, in short, the Greek culture believed in evolution, and it was very idolatrous in its worship. Hopefully you're starting to see the similarities of where our nation is headed today. This is very, very familiar. It almost defines America to a T. And in fact, actually studying their downfall, which we can read from history, will actually give you a very good idea, a very graphic idea of where America will head without Jesus at its center. We need Jesus at our center to make any sort of change. These Gentiles didn't have Jewish scriptures, so Paul, therefore, has to teach them from something that is a common ground, something that they could both get and understand. And he realizes that they worship gods. And he says, hey, you know what? There's a God that's a creator that you're not worshiping, and I'm going to talk about him because I can tell you guys want to worship. Now, while their philosophers and idolatries really made God a hard concept for them because they believed in many gods, and they believed that everything was okay. So standing on one truth was actually a hard concept for them. Standing with one God was a hard concept, but he was able to breach that subject. Now, he still worked in their consciences as well, just as he works in our nation today. God still works in our conscience, and God uses that in us to be able to actually point us towards the truth. Later in Romans, Paul would write these words, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul finds a common ground, the conscience from which is a launch pad into the gospel. He says, you know what? Your consciences are seared. There's these things that you just can't shake no matter what. There are different standards that God has set inside you and God is working through you. And he uses this as a launch pad to talk to them about the creator, the one true creator who's given the standards to us. The gospel relates to every single one of us as we're each in the same state. While you may look different and what you may say in each situation may slightly differ 
God has spoken to each one of us. He calls us and he tells us that there's something missing without him in our lives. And we can each feel it. And Paul recognizes this. He says, you guys are worshiping what you don't know. Do you even know why you're worshiping? Why do you feel called to worship? We're all called to worship. And the question is why? And Paul has the answer, and so do you. The one thing that I've always found interesting about this witness that Paul does is that he actually quotes their own poets. So in Scripture, we actually have five different times we have Gentile poets that are actually quoted. Paul actually uses them. In verse 28, if you take a look, in verse 28 it says, For in him we live and move, we have our being. And also some of your own poets have said, For we are also his offspring. So he actually quotes their own poets. Through his quotes, we're going to find that Paul actually pays attention to the culture. Like I said, in the New Testament, we have five different places in the New Testament that we know for a fact that different poets are quoted. We actually even know the names of those poets as well and what they said. But this is an interesting and important divide when we're talking about the Christianity and as it faces our culture. Some people would stick their heads in the sand. In Christian circles, we feel that sometimes we have to completely stay away from the, the culture. So an extreme example, not in a common, but an extreme, we are surrounded by Amish. The Amish have completely dislocated themselves from the culture. They're no longer a part of it. They've completely disjointed. They're no longer following the culture. They're completely apart from it. Now, there is another extreme. The other extreme is to be some of the churches that have become so completely absorbed by the culture that they look more like one of the local golf clubs or maybe the local foreign legion club instead of a church, because they start looking so much like the culture. So there's two extremes, to stick your head to the stand or to become exactly like it. Those are both unhealthy places for the church to be. Paul is acknowledging the culture here in his references. And one of the things that we can learn from him is that Christ actually calls us to be able to preach to these cultures, to these people, to become around and part. In fact, actually, Jesus has very strong words about what we are supposed to be. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You, speaking of Christians, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it then be seasoned? Is it good for nothing? It is to be good for nothing, to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. This is what Jesus is using as an analogy for us as Christians, as the way we interact with the world around us. Now, when I was growing up, uh, my mom didn't allow us uh, very often to use salt and pepper. She'll even tell you today. She, she kind of hid them on the top drawer and did not allow us. I think she was trying to teach me contentment. But at eight years old, all I know is I wanted a different taste than what was on my plate and salt was going to bring it. Salt changes the taste of the entire dish. It can enhance the flavor. You use it to change things up. It if it, it doesn't have that salty flavor, which uh, actually we had some pepper. Actually, I recently changed out our pepper. It had been in there a lot longer than I'm willing to admit because it just got, pepper gets used slow in our house. But when I changed it, I actually put some on uh, my peas the other night. Um, and you could taste the difference of the good uh, seasoning, uh, good seasoning and old seasoning. There's a huge difference in that taste. And God calls us to be seasoning to the world, to be able to actually be something different that actually enhances life in the world. Jesus isn't saying that, Jesus was saying that salt that doesn't have flavor isn't useful in the way it was originally intended. Finds a new purpose. Be trampled under the foot of men is what he says. This is why walking a balance of both understanding the culture but not being absorbed by it is so important. We are to understand the culture around it but not to be absorbed by it. So 
If we know nothing of the culture and we keep our heads in the sand, we can't minister to these people because we can't understand what they're going through, what their thoughts are and their philosophies. We have to have a basic idea of what's going on. But the other hand, if we are out drinking every weekend, if we are swearing all the time, if we are out uh, gossiping about one another and telling stories about other church members and their failures and faults to everybody, then we become no different than the culture that we are surrounded with. So there has got to be a balance. God is calling us to that balance, to not be absorbed by the culture and look too much like them. Now, you have to stand out, but not to the point of complete ignorance. So this is why we develop our final point, friendships and relationships. So gone are the days when we feel like we can trust strangers. Anyone who has done door-to-door ministry, anybody here ever done door-to-door ministry? You guys, a couple of people here? Uh, It is interesting. Uh, I I have heard stories of back when people would open their doors and welcome you in. Uh, While I was in college, uh, I did a couple of door-to-door ministries, and it was, even though the guy I was with, everybody knew, they just, they don't trust us anymore, you know? Uh, You think of the Leave it to Beaver show, where Beaver was going around, and he'd get corrected by everybody in the town. Those days are gone, and we are barely, rarely welcomed into someone's house anymore. Study after study has shown what you probably already know to be true, that you are more apt to take advice and listen to those who you have a strong relationship with. You already know this. You listen to the people who you have strong relationships with. God gave us this ability to develop relationships. These are with our friends, families, and even our co-workers. Now, now there are some things to consider as we're moving forward. Those How can I put this? Give me just a second. We get a chance to speak into other people's lives, but there is a balance of how long should I wait till I tell them the gospel? Have you ever wondered that? Have you started a relationship saying, hey, I'm going to reach this person for Jesus, but then have you ever found yourself waiting for too long? And now it's just kind of awkward. Now now when do I tell them? How am I going to tell them? We are called to love the world And it is far more work to walk with someone long-term than it is to just give them the gospel presentation right off. But in Christian circles, we call this lifestyle evangelism. We try to walk around. But the point is we have to tell people the uh, gospel. Uh, Telling people and friending them uh, to tell them the gospel is much like dating relationships. Have you ever gone into the friend zone where you went to go and ask somebody out, uh, but you waited too long and you were just, they wanted to stay just friends? Unfortunately, uh, when we're telling people about the gospel, we can actually have that same relationship window. The idea of lifestyle evangelism is that I, as a Christian, live in such a way that other people are just going to ask me about my, my relationship with Jesus. That's the idea. But unfortunately, the gospel tells us something else. It says that we are to uh, open our mouths and to tell them the truth. It says, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How then shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? God sends us out to open our mouth, not just to live a lifestyle to try to make people question, because unfortunately, not everybody always asks the questions. And it could be too late by the time that they actually want to. We are actually sent as Christians to go and tell other people about the truth, the speaking of them. Now, today we covered three different topics. We talked about speaking to the religious, the secular, and developing relationships. The religious, like I said, typically have two different reactions. We have arrogance or humility. We have to start with the scripture. When you get a chance to go and tell other people about Jesus, start with the scripture. It's always going to be your authority. Allow it to be your authority and be humble enough 
as you learn and trust and lean on God's word. God's word is inerrant. It won't fail you. Trust it. When people come up against it, be honest and say, you know what? I might not know that answer right now, but I will get back to you. I promise. Be okay with not knowing absolutely everything. You don't have to know everything when you start talking to people. The secular, while they may not follow God's word or even know a single line of it, have the same situations that you face. Paul realized this. He understood that they were worshiping something they didn't know. You too can talk to other people who don't believe in God or have a religious background by finding a common ground. But we also looked at ways to work and develop our relationships. So I'm going to ask you a question today. Do you have relationships that you intend to use to show other people Jesus? I'm hoping you do. Do you have relationships currently that you are working on? Somebody that you know. We had several different prayer requests of people that we know that don't know the Lord. But the real questions are, have you modeled a life for them that shows Jesus? Would they know that you are something different by your lifestyle? How about, have you told them the truth? Now is not a good time, is always an excuse. But we're always going to find a reason to not open our mouth. Unfortunately, I have been there. So let me ask you, if you're not going to point them to Jesus, are you really following him? This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. God has put people in our lives so we can point them to him. But if you've developed a relationship with the idea of eventually telling them about Jesus, but over the years you've never said anything about him, are you really following him? Are you really pointing them to Jesus? This is a question that only you can answer in your relationship, and you look at them long term. Do I have somebody in my life that I had intended originally to tell Jesus, but I never have? I just, I live my life, but I never open my mouth and point them to scripture. We each reason that one day we're going to point them to the truth. Like I said, I've been there. I have done this. I've had a hard time reaching the relationship topic with Jesus. But my excuses were just that. They were excuses. And they were just reasons to put off what I know that I needed to do and what I was called to do by my Savior. If God can step in and turn their life around, why would you hold that back? God can step in, turn their life around. Don't hold that back. So I want to encourage you, step up, tell people about Jesus. He will reward your faithfulness. Do it in humility. And there are ways to tell every single person around you about Jesus. And it just takes one little step. So I'm going to close in prayer. Father, I do thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can learn about the different cultures and the fact that even your missionaries early on use different approaches when talking to people about Jesus. Lord, I know that you've called each and one of us not just to live a life that exemplifies you, but to open our mouths. And I know that that's the hardest thing. But I also know that a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the book of Acts in chapter 1 and 2, you said that you were sending your Holy Spirit to be able to enable us to open our mouths. So Lord, I ask that you continue to help us to speak the truth of who you are, to stand up for truth when it's questioned or when it's being attacked. Father, I ask that you help us to stand firm in you, be humble, and know that we don't know all the answers, but that you can defend yourself. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to learn from your word. Help us to go from this place changed. In Jesus' name. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. 
I do pray that these are helpful during the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We're told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known, by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoy today's message.